Welcome to Season 5 of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, refreshing and captivating interviews with sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. From Mike Greenberg to Ryan Dempster, Dan McNeil to Sarah Kustak, they reveal entertaining, memorable, and emotional stories some you've never heard before. I'm your host, George Hoffman, and please follow or subscribe to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is proudly sponsored by Vienna Beef, home of the Chicago hot dog and an institution since 1893. Find them at ViennaBeef.com. And by Dynamic Manufacturing, awarded the General Motors Supplier of the Year 23 times. They can be found at DynamicManufacturingInc.com. This week we feature the best of season five, which was chock full of fabulous stories, all of which had a valuable meaning to these six guests, not the least of which was this one. Former Cincinnati Reds and Fox play-by-play man Tom Brenneman painfully remembers that late August day in 2020 that since put a halt to what was a very successful and fulfilling career. We were doing like all Major League Baseball teams were doing during the time of the pandemic. Uh, We were not traveling with a team. So we were broadcasting all of the road games from a studio in downtown Cincinnati. The Reds were playing a doubleheader, and they were seven-inning doubleheaders, if you remember. And it was game one of a doubleheader. And we were in a commercial break, and I had flippantly used the word that I used. And... Didn't think anything of it. I don't have a a homophobic bone in my body. Not one bone, not one piece of skin on my body. Am I in any form or fashion a homophobe? But I use the term. And so there are always going to be people out there that are going to think I'm a homophobe. It doesn't matter what I say or what I do. Um, I said it. Wasn't thinking anything of it. We moved on. Uh, I don't ha- keep a computer in front of me like a lot of broadcasters do today, but my partner sitting next to me, Chris Welsh, does. And um, he looks over at me right when the first game ended. I can't remember what inning I said it in. It was late in the game. And he said, hey, have you checked your phone? And I said, no. He said, you might want to check it out. And it was just when the game was over. So I, I got up, walked out of the studio to start writing down the lineups for the second game in a little cubicle in the Fox Sports Ohio studios uh, offices there. And sure enough, I've got a message from my boss and says, have you seen this? And I push the button and it's what I said that wound up somehow, some way, and I still don't know to this day, how it got on the air. And I knew right then and there that, um, that this was obviously a really bad situation that was only going to get worse. And so I got about a two innings into the second game, uh, get a text from my bosses saying, you got to get off the air right now. I said, well, look, I said, I'm not getting off the air until I can at least offer an apology, uh, which, you know, I'm on live TV. I'm watching my career go completely down the tubes. Um, and, and believe me, I've been around long enough and, and knew the client, especially that we live in right now, where this was uh, this was going to be it for a long time. So I, I did the best I could. I made a comment earlier tonight that uh, I guess uh, went out over the year that I am deeply ashamed of. Um, if I have hurt anyone out there, 
I can't tell you how much I say from the bottom of my heart, I'm so very, very sorry. I pride myself and think of myself as a, a man of faith. As there's a drive in a deep left field by Castellanos, it will be a home run. And so that'll make it a 4-0 ball game. I don't know if I'm going to be putting on this headset again. I don't know if it's going to be for the Reds. I don't know if it's going to be for my bosses at Fox. I want to apologize for the people who signed my paycheck for the Reds, for Fox Sports Ohio, for the people I work with, for anybody that I've offended here tonight. I can't begin to tell you how deeply sorry I am. That is not who I am uh, and never has been. And I'd like to think maybe I could have some people that, uh, that could back that up. I am very, very sorry, and I beg for your forgiveness. Jim Day will take you the rest of the way home. A lot of people have made fun of it because I called a home run in the middle of it, you know, and I, I don't pay attention to those people. I mean, I, I'm sitting there trying to, to wrestle with the fact that my career is going to be over. Am I embarrassing my family? Am I, you know, all these kinds of things, how many people I've hurt by what I said. And, and so I call a home run in the middle of it and go on with the apology. I leave. Um, I get a phone call from the owner of the Reds as I'm walking out the door and he says, look, we know who you are. We know this isn't you. Just sit tight. It's all going to be okay. And I, and I called my wife when I got in the car and I told her that Mr. Castellini called me and told me that. And, and I said, I can promise you by the time I get back home, which is about an 18 minute ride, uh, the longest 18 minutes of my life, I can assure you. Um, by the time I got back home, I said, he's going to change his tune. There would just be too much pressure. Um, so sure enough, that's exactly what happened. So that night, um, I get suspended um, by them, get a phone call the next morning. As soon as I wake up from my bosses at Fox Sports, I had been there since day one when they came on the air in 1994, uh, was told that I was going to be suspended uh, for a certain period of time to be determined. That wound up being the entire football season, which was getting ready to start in 2020. Um, so, you know, all of this happens. And, you know, the, the, the thing I'm most concerned about is um, the embarrassment I'm causing to my family. I'm really not thinking about myself much at this point. One of the few times I'm not thinking about myself. And um, so I talked that night to Billy Bean, not the general manager, Billy Bean, but Billy Bean, who is the assistant to the commissioner of Major League Baseball, a gay man, former big-time prospect, played in the big league for the Dodgers, uh, wrestled a lot of mental health issues with the fact that he knew he was gay, but at that particular point in time, there was no way he could come out. He wrote a book about it called Going the Other Way. I read it. It was fascinating. It was bold, and it was necessary to write. And he's since become, you know, a, a very integral part of Major League Baseball and handling situations like mine. Josh Hader had had a thing on, you know, Twitter a thousand yeah. years ago that somebody dug up. And so anyway, I talked to him that night. And um, and ever since then, you know, the, the, the journey for the whole thing has, has been amazing. Uh, I, I've come to learn so much and I'm so grateful for a number of, of, of uh, the gay community members here in Cincinnati that um, they could have just written me off and said, you know, you're this and you're that and blah, blah, blah. They didn't. Uh, primarily a group of about a dozen of the leaders in that community 
I went over to the guy's house, was invited over to just sit and listen uh, roughly about 10 days after all this happened uh, to learn about what the word that I said really means to a lot of people. Nobody's offering me a job. I mean, you know, I, I can't do anything about that. Do I wish it was different? I do wish it was different. Do I look around sometimes and, and say, wow, man, I mean, uh, you know, this network just hired that guy. This guy just hired that guy. You know, um, I, 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 I even, you know, tried to say to my bosses, look, I, I don't wish anybody any will will in any, in any form or fashion. I said, but you gave Michael Vick a chance to come back. I said, now, I, I'm not comparing or contrasting, but there are a lot of animal lovers out there. And there was a point in time where this guy was, was torturing and killing dogs. And now, is my what I said worse, not as bad? I don't know. That's for somebody else to decide. But I was just saying, I, I, I think that, you know, if you look at what I've tried to do since then, I, I, I would like to hope and pray that it would warrant somebody at least considering giving me another chance. It's, it, it's been, it's been um, you know, closing in on two years, not too long from now. And, um, and you just kind of keep plugging away and stay upbeat and keep the faith and hope that you get a chance. And if you don't, there's nothing I can do about it. I can pull myself, you know, uh, in, in this direction and that direction and getting mad and getting upset. And I've done all those things, but there's nothing I can do about it. Vienna beef, two words synonymous with hot dogs. They're the home of the Chicago hot dog and an institution since 1893. If you've had a hot dog, chances are it was from Vienna. And did you know there are more locations selling Vienna in Chicago than McDonald's, Burger King, and Wendy's combined? There's nothing like biting into a juicy and delicious pure beef Vienna hot dog dragged through the garden, which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and some celery salt. And oh, those Polish sausages dripping with flavor. And look for the spicy smoked sausage available in your local retail stores. It includes a perfect blend of seasonings such as crushed red peppers and brown sugar, creating a bold and zesty taste. Vienna products are available in restaurants, grocery stores, and entertainment venues such as the ballparks, cups, and socks, stadiums, museums, and zoos. Plus, you can purchase them online, coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and on Amazon. And remember, Vienna is not just hot dogs and sausages. Look for their farm makers' chili, mini bagel dogs, condiments, and classic deli meats. Take it from a guy who was weaned on, then sold Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Check them out at ViennaBeef.com. What are memories, if not ones indelibly etched in the minds of millions? Such was the case for Wayne Mesmer, the longtime voice of the national anthem for the Chicago Cubs, Chicago Wolves, and for many years, the Chicago Blackhawks. But on January 19, 1991, Mesmer wrote his own national headline, or shall I say, sang it. NBC was covering the game, the All-Star game that year, and uh, they had opted out of the anthem on a game that was telecast from the stadium earlier that year. And the fans were like, come on, what's the deal here? So this was a day and a half after the Gulf War had begun. So the emotions were running high. So the patriotism was at an honest level of, uh, of in, in enhanced state. And I knew before the game, they said, we're covering the Canadian and the U.S. anthem in its entirety. If we need to break away 
for a news break or update of any kind, it's not going to happen to replace the anthem. Okay, cool. So it's rare when what we are God gifted to do and requested by man meet at the same intersection. But that certainly was it. That was where if you're ever going to do this thing right, this is the time to do it. was so emotional that it took really intense concentration because uh, it's tough to sing with a giant emotional lump in your throat when you're about ready to burst into tears and then finished and was just like a just like a wet dish rag just sweated you know throughout both of them and then uh, <clears throat> Kathleen was with me up in the organ loft and he just kind of gave her a big hug and we said man we Ooh, we just did something. And then that night, uh, later in the, in the evening, every local and national newscast opened and closed mm. with that video. And I thought, wow, this, is, this was quite a day. That is probably, to this day, one of the most memorable renditions of the national anthem, I, I could argue, in this country's history. Well, it is. And it, uh, I just happened to be the guy there. And, and I fortunately had the ability and the, and the gift to be able to do it right at a time when we needed to hear it right. It's interesting because that was broadcast to the troops uh, via Armed Forces uh, Radio. And years later, probably three years later, I'm uh, singing at, a, at an event at McCormick Place. So I'm backstage and it's a big convention and uh, uh, I'm, I'm standing there and, and backstage there, it's pitch black. And all of a sudden this hand comes down on my shoulder and I, whoa, you know, I turn around and then this giant meat hook of a hand extends itself and said, Wayne, thank you for singing the song the way it's supposed to be sung when we needed to hear it done right. Well, you're welcome, General Norman Schwarzkopf. Oh, my goodness. And it was like, wow. And I love telling that story to kids that saying, you never know who's watching, who's listening. But it means as much as it, it, it means to you, it can just have an enormous impact on other people. I mean, there's not a, I mean, I can't even begin to count how many times people have said, you know, I was, I was over there and uh, saw this on, uh, on armed forces TV or radio or however it was, it was broadcast. And uh, they get very teary eyed. I do the, uh, uh, the honor flights. I don't know if you're hip to those where they send veterans over to Washington, D.C. for a day and do all the memorials and then come back Chicago and Milwaukee. Fabulous deals. Well, now they're into the, the World War II guys are, you know, there are not many left. And then we have some Korean War guys. But now we're getting into my generation of the Vietnam and yes. the 
you know, and the Gulf War guys. And, and it's because of that song, you know, and that, and really that particular version touched a lot of hearts. I sometimes feel guilty making a career out of a song that I learned in first grade, but apparently I paid more attention than the rest of the kids in class. Size matters, or so we've been told. But it absolutely mattered to Bill Winnington, a member of three Chicago Bulls championship teams and its current radio analyst. Yes, size matters, only for Winnington, in more ways than you think. I love all sports, and maybe you don't know that uh, basketball is not my first love, or uh, as far as sports go. I grew, grew up in Montreal, Canada, and I could skate at the age of two. So I was a hockey player, and I wasn't a good hockey player, but I played a lot of hockey uh, growing up. We uh, played pastime. You know, you know, things when we were kids were different. We didn't have organized sports quite the same as it is today. So we'd play with our friends in the street. We'd get our skates and run down to the local ice rink when, in Canada, which was outside, and play hockey all the time. But uh, I like to tell people I was uh, so bad at hockey I started because that the, the only other – Four, four best skaters on the ice could uh, skate with me to, to cover up for me. But I was uh, good enough to play. I played on some travel teams, but the lower travel teams. I didn't play on uh, the, the A team, so to speak. But uh, I had a lot of fun growing up playing hockey uh, when I was a kid. I would think that anybody born in Canada would likely be wearing a pair of skates at one time in his or her life. Pretty much. I think... It's everyone, especially when I was growing up, that was, you know, hockey was the big thing and skating was everything. And I, I actually even remember going down memories before I could skate, uh, learning to skate. And the skates were almost, if you remember the old roller skates where you had the four wheels, well, the skates we learn on had almost like four blades. And you skate on every, and everybody used them. And so... I remember those, and I remember at two years old being able to skate around on a regular set of blades. By the time you stopped playing, were you too big then? That's a real funny story. I was 11 years old, and I had a size 13 foot and skate, which my foot was crammed into. By the time I was 12, it was a 14. I could no longer fit into the skates. And I could no, no longer find another pair of skates. So I could no longer play hockey. And I remember that winter, early in the winter, uh, I was swimming at the Point Claire pool in uh, the West Island of Montreal. Uh, at the time was a, a, a great, a big pool. And one, one of the pools that the uh, Canadian Olympic swim team and diving team practiced at. But I was there for swim lessons and my uh, Brother and sister and I, and my mother would let us swim, free swim afterwards, and we'd hang out at the pool, basically for half the day or whatever. And I was fooling around with some kids that we met, and all of a sudden, uh, this gentleman was there and started talking to me. And I was, again, I was 11 and a half years old, 12 years, almost 12 years old. My birthday's in April. And he thought I was 16 or 17 years old and asked if I've ever played basketball. <laughs> I said no. And that's how it all started. Really? Yes. And I, so he introduced me, he went and started talking to my mom and I started playing for uh, uh, the West Island uh, 
what the Western Island of Wiseman is what they called it. And it was, I guess it was kind of like travel or AAU basketball at the beginning, but it wasn't really the same thing. And there was a little house league that we played in that was not far from my house. So that was it. It was just a chance bumping into someone at the swimming pool. Otherwise, I'm sure I would have started playing basketball somewhere else down the line, but probably not for another year or two. Because to that point, George, really, I had never touched a basketball. Uh, gym class, we didn't shoot baskets ever in gym class growing up. So I was in sixth, sixth grade, and I'd never even shot a basketball at a hoop yet. Wow, that's amazing. Now, in, in sixth grade, how tall were you? I don't know in sixth grade, but I do know in seventh grade, I was six foot two. Oh, my. In eighth grade, I was six five. In ninth grade, I was six nine. And in ninth grade, you were six nine. I just want to tell you something, okay? <laughs> yes. In ninth grade, which of course was the first year of high school, I was four nine. Oh. <laughs> you were two feet taller than I was at our same age. I hate to admit that. Uh, <laughs> here, well, I'll admit something to you then since you did that. We, uh, when I first started playing basketball, I was six foot two and I was 12 years old. And on the house league, we played on eight foot baskets and on the house league, I was okay. I was pretty good. Um, you know, cause I was six foot two and pretty much everyone else was, you know, not even five feet yet because I was so good there. They put me on the travel team, which was, as I said, the Wiseman team, uh, YMCA, YMCA travel team. We played on 10 foot baskets. The most points I scored in a game once was four points. I, George, I was horrible. And when I talked to people and do motivational talks, I said, I learned the most important thing in my life, uh, in my life about basketball that, that year. And I tell them that story, how bad I was, but I loved it. I loved playing. I loved competing. I loved uh, being on a team with the guys. And it, that was my inspiration to keep working at it and trying to get better. Uh, every day and I started uh, working on my game and uh, albeit in Canada is different than it, it would be here in New York and, or in the States rather and I found that out as soon as I moved to New York but uh, that was the catalyst to make me better I learned that I loved the game and it was fun for me to play and, and I enjoyed it. Want to hear more great guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know? It's easy. Just follow me on social media, at George Offman. That's O-F-M-A-N. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please follow or subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? 
What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. There are baseball writers, and then there's Bob Nightingale. For the last 27 years, he's been the national baseball writer for USA Today, and he's been at every major event and has broken myriad stories. Who better than to take a look at what the future of baseball might look like? Pitch clock is definitely coming. They need to speed up the game, and uh, they're going to, you know, the bases will be three inches bigger, trying to get more stolen bases. You know, uh, you know, limiting the shifts. You know, maybe you can still have four guys, uh, you know, to the uh, right of second base, but everybody's got to have their feet in the uh, infield. Uh, but yeah, just trying to get baseball back to where there's some action. Uh, you know, right now it's you know, as someone put it to me, it's like a uh, you watching know, NFL quarterback watching Tom Brady go back and throw a bomb every single play. Hey, it's cool and it works every couple of quarters, but you know, you get bored watching home run, strike out, or walk. Uh, you know, the beauty, the beauty about football is the drive. You know, the beauty of baseball is the rally, but we don't see rallies. Uh, you know, instead, it's, you, know, you, you can tell the sports got problem when they, uh, you know, Albert Pujols pitches in a blowout and people are going crazy over that or, or uh, Anthony Doan, you know, goes a plate, you know, hitting left-handed and hits a home run off a uh, position player, Brett Phillips. Well, I'm just, you know, gimmicky stuff uh you know when i was watching uh, bo jackson i remember bo jumped in the batting cage one day in the metrodome and uh, jumped in left-handed and you know they're yelling at him hey bo what, what, the, what are you doing he hit first first ball he saw he hits in the upper deck left-handed so guys can do it but you know it's, it's one thing you're doing against a real pitcher but you know it, it's a problem you know when people are making a big thing of these uh you know crazy little gimmicks, things like that, when position players are doing it, when really a team should be embarrassed doing it. I, I was I was stunned the Cardinals did it. I, I, I thought they were above that. When we were growing up, uh, a long game was like three hours or two and a half hours. And now a short or regular game is three hours and 20 minutes. And I know that they've tried the pitch clock in the minors and they've reduced the games by 20 minutes. 20 minutes is 20 minutes. It still seems like it's going to be a very long game. When you have teams like the Red Sox and the Yankees that are geared to take so many pitches that those games will still be long. What, what else can be done to make the game more attractive to a younger generation that doesn't seem to be interested in a lot of sports and not just baseball? No, and yeah, yeah. I, mean, I was misspoke when I said gimmick to the pitch clock. I mean, that's going to work. That bus can speed up by 25 minutes. But hey, if you have a great action-packed game, uh, I don't care if it's four and a half hours. It's, you know, it's entertaining. But yeah, I mean, that's the real concern is just kids aren't playing baseball. I mean, you can go outside in uh, Chicago, George, and, you know, drive along. You know, how many kids you actually see, uh, you know, playing baseball outside? Nothing, you know? nothing, Bob, nothing. It used to be all the diamonds were filled 
I, I, and it's exactly the case I drive around now. Those, those diamonds are empty. Yeah. Yeah. Kids are bored by the thing. I got a lot of friends that had zero interest watching the game of baseball. I mean, when you think of an NFL past baseball popularity you know, years ago, maybe decades ago, NBA is now past it. Uh, they better be careful or hockey's going to pass it too. I mean, uh, there's a reason why ESPN dumped all the baseball except for Sunday night and picked up hockey because they thought there was a, uh, uh, no, not, maybe not a dying sport is right, but certainly a, a, a sport where they were losing a lot of money doing it, and they think hockey is the way to go. Well, as of last year, I know attendance had dropped for an eighth straight season. Why? Are the games too long? Are they too expensive? Are there other reasons? People are, are, are bored, and people are, you know, look at the, what it takes to get families out now. you got to have, uh, you know, giveaways, whether it's bobbleheads, whether it's fireworks night, things like that. So baseball tennis this year is pretty flat, only down maybe one or two percent, which is actually encouraging, considering they came off the, uh, you know, the, the the labor dispute and uh, started the season so late and uh, changed the schedule around a little bit. Well, let's go back to labor because there seems to be a hue and cry to remove Rob Manfred as commissioner. Does the sport need new leadership? Remember, Rob Manfred works for the owners. I mean, if the owners had told Rob Manfred, "Hey, you can have a." Let's have a $300 million you know, luxury tax. He said, sure, what, you, if that's what you guys want, let's do it. So they pay us checks. Uh, you, know, and you know, the owners are used to you know, making uh, good money. They love watching the, uh, the franchises go up in value. Remember, it took 27 votes for Rob Manford to become commissioner, despite you know, Bud Sealy pushing hard for him. Uh, you know, Jerry Reinsdorf, a White Sox owner, was one of the ones who pushed against him. He thought he'd be better off having someone in ownership rather than a, uh, an outside person doing it. And uh, so I know, you know, Bob Manfred's the easy target and stuff, uh, but really he's just carrying out the wishes of owners. One more topic on this, and I'm just curious how you feel about this. It would seem inevitable that robot umpires are going to be part of this sport. What do you feel about that? I don't like it, but I, I think it's a, uh, it's a direct message for for the gamblers i mean if wasn't if baseball was not embracing gambling they wouldn't be talking about rubble umpires but i think with all the money being put on baseball now and where you're having uh in in phoenix for instance right next to the ticket window is the betting windows mm -hmm. uh you know it's the uh if some calls calls go the wrong way in the seventh eighth ninth inning uh, you know, you're going to have death threats and everything else in umpires. Umpires don't like it either. I mean, pretty soon you're going to be able to bet on every single pitch, you know, ball strike, you know, that's that sort of thing. So I think this is just a thing for uh, for the gamblers. Uh, you know, I, I think the umpires do a great job. And, you know, the box on TV is not right. They'll tell you that. So fans watching the games and stuff, it's like, you know, the boxes make a difference whether it's, you know, Jose Altuve at five foot five or, you know, or Aaron Judge at six, seven. Uh, and then, you know, sometimes two just swing the bat. I mean, you see these players go crazy because a, an umpire called a uh, strike when the ball was about a half inch outside. If it's close, swing. That's, that's the trouble. Uh, too many people are just looking to take walks instead of just go, go ahead and swing and trying to get some hits. Corey McFerrin was a longtime sportscaster in several cities, including Chicago, until he made the switch to news. But it was while he was with WABC in New York when on assignment in San Francisco, a major sporting event he was covering turned into an even bigger news event. 
Well, ABC had the World Series at that time, and that's why we, as the ABC-owned station in New York, uh, got to go out there and cover it. They thought it was a, a neat thing to do, and we had coverage, of course, news coverage before and after the game. Their audience would be huge, so we go out there. And uh, what I remember most about it was the night before the earthquake, a lot of us had gone out as one is wont to do at, uh, at a certain age on the road with fellow broadcasters and had a few libations. And uh, I remember getting in late the night before and all I remember the next day thinking, boy, I wish I hadn't stayed out so late. I'm really tired. I can't wait to get back to the hotel and go to bed. Well, it turned out to be like the longest day and night of my career because the earthquake, as you know, George, struck just before the game was to begin, just at the end of sort of pregame warmups. Allowing Jose Canseco to score and he fails to get Dave Parker at second base. So the Oakland A's take, take. I'll tell you what, we're having an earthquake. television bar none i'm there and i i'm standing i had just done my live shot uh, back to new york and i look out at the parking lot and the first thing i see are the the they had light poles out there and i'm thinking why are the light poles moving <laughs> and why does the entire parking lot look like it's sort of a wave. I think, am I not feeling well? Why am I not seeing this thing right? And then somebody said, you know, what's going on here? And you look up and you turn around. I remember this in my mind too. I look up and we're just right next to the park looking straight up and the, the light standards, the lights are, are, are moving in the perimeter, the lights for the ballpark that is, mm. and they're moving. And then the truck, I mean, this big satellite truck, you know, it must be how many thousands of pounds and it's wobbling. And I'm thinking, and actually I'm on the phone, oddly enough, with Tim Weigel, because I had done a live shot for Chicago, weirdly enough, for Tim and Channel 7 in Chicago that same night. I was helping out other ABC stations that day. And I said, Timmy, I got to go. There's something weird going on. Hung up with him. Somebody who, who knew L.A. says, this is an earthquake. This all happened in like 14 seconds, you know. And, and so I, I suddenly stop and, and, and then you just go. And then the players, the players, do you remember this, George? The players walked out. Uh, they didn't know what was going on. Eventually, they send people home. And the players walked out in their uniforms to get into their various cars and the buses and whatever. And they took off in their uniform. Never forget that. We covered the heck out of the thing all night long. And the next morning we were, we were on, uh, I remember the Regis and Kathy show, uh, Kathy Lee show uh, had us on and uh, we fed into the morning news back in New York. And, and, and the real coup de grace for me, George, I'll never forget. I am so tired. And it was just the next morning though, I'm, I'm sort of been dismissed for, for a while to go back to the hotel and maybe get a couple hours of sleep. I'm walking back. And right in front of me, coming the other way, is ABC News anchor Peter Jennings, who I had never met. All this talk today about how well the region has done, that is to say how efficient the rescue teams have been, how good the morale of the people have been is one thing. All this talk about the resilience in the Bay Area of San Francisco and Oakland is another. But getting these two cities particularly to run at the peak of efficiency they're accustomed to is quite another. He knew me enough to say, as we as we passed, all he said was, 
nice job, kid. Very impressed. And I couldn't believe it. The fact that he even recognized me, but apparently the night before in New York, you know, he had, he'd seen whatever I had done. And, and I, that was a, maybe the finest compliment I ever got. I'll never forget it. While you were in New York, you also had a rather up-close and in-person encounter with a very young Mike Tyson. That's right, I did. Tyson had really come on, uh, and I don't have all the facts and figures in front of me, but he was living about an hour and a half north of New York City. So we go up there, we somehow we, we found a way to get through to him. He had just won some fights and was getting some notoriety. And so we go up there one day and we capture him on this farm where he lived with uh, Custom Auto and his family. And, and, and we get to know him a little bit. He shows us these pigeons. Remember he had that, he was famous for these pigeons that he, he sort of uh, looked after in those days. And, and so, you know, he's from Brooklyn. He was very raw and, and very young. But one of the questions he asked me during the time we interviewed him and, and took video of him around this farm, he says, uh, Hey, uh, I'm not going to try to do a Mike Tyson impersonation because I'd, I'd failed miserably at it. But he says, "What do you, what do you, what do you do? I'm 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 uh, I'm 19 and I, I can't rent a car and I got to rent a car. How do I do that? You know, mm. he's asking me just practical stuff. And then he says, "Hey, what 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 do you do? Uh, you know, these these girls keep coming up to me and they 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 want to get together and they they you know I don't know what I should do and he's asking me like personal questions it's like ask Ann Landers and I'm like the <laughs> I'm like I'm like 29 30 years old I mean I'm not much older than him so I'm trying to give him some advice and I, I'm just like what am I doing here with this kid you know did he remember the advice you tried to give him when you saw him later on <laughs> no he didn't mention that he re ah. he remembered that we had connected when he was just coming out but. He didn't say anything about that, but uh, it was it was cool. Did you know General Motors 2021 Supplier of the Year is located in Hillside, Illinois? Dynamic Manufacturing not only remanufactures transmissions for the likes of GM, but also as a state-of-the-art facility. Its capabilities include engineering new or existing products, along with manufacturing, machining, logistics, and re-energizing used batteries for electric cars and energy storage systems. I've seen their operation firsthand, and their nearly 1 million square feet of operating space is extremely impressive. Dynamic was founded by the late, great John Partipillo in 1955 and is still family-owned and operated by the next generation. For more information about Dynamic Manufacturing, visit their website at dynamicmanufacturinginc.com. Dynamic Manufacturing. Honor the legacy. Pioneer the future. Taking a leap of faith, that's what Dave Wills did 18 years ago, and so did his wife. When opportunity came knocking after one door closed, Wills opened this one, and to a world he never wants to leave. The Royals job, you know, was not at the end of the 97 season, and uh, applied for it, got a call, went out to Kansas City, met with uh, their broadcasting coordinator, the, the sports director, the program director, the radio station, uh, had lunch at Royal Stadium. Met with a few more people there. And as we were driving back from uh, the ballpark, the program director is telling me, uh, you got a you know one-year-old daughter. Well, you're probably going to want to live in this area because uh, she's going to want to go to this school and you're going to want to go over here. And it's close to the airport. It's close to the ballpark. And honestly thought I had the gig. <laughs> uh, get back home. And about a week later, 
get the phone call and the guy goes, well, you, uh, you got the silver medal. Um, Ryan Lefevre's got a little more uh, name recognition. His dad played in the big leagues and Ryan's a great guy and he's a great announcer and he's been there ever since. So he must be doing something right too. And Ryan's one of my all-time favorites. So Ryan beat me out. I got the silver medal, but stayed with the White Sox for a few years. And then in 04, in December of 04, I got a phone call from Mitch Rosen, who now uh, runs the score. And he was doing some quasi uh, agent work at the time. And I guess he had been in touch with John Brown, who had been with the White Sox, who was now with the Devil Rays. And John was inquiring about some uh, guys who might want to apply for the Devil Rays job. And so my name came up. This is early December. They called me up and they said, uh, Dave, we'd like you to apply for the Devil Rays job. I said, all right, well, let me think about it. And so this was, like I said, December 3rd or 4th. And then I just thought to myself, you know what? These are one, There's only 30 of these gigs in the world. And, you know, I know the Devil Rays aren't a great team right now. And the other thing that was leaning on me, though, is that my wife and I had just purchased a house in Orland Park that was three blocks from her older sister, three blocks from her younger sister, and a mile from her mom. And before, you know, anybody starts joking, well, aren't you dying to get out of that area? I, I loved her, her, her mom was, if every mother-in-law was like her mom, there wouldn't be mother-in-law jokes. And, uh, and then her mm. two sisters are, are tremendous. And so uh, we, we took this house, we knocked it down to the studs, and we built it back up to all of our specifications. And I remember my brother-in-law, who's the builder, working with me on it. He kept on saying, Dave, are you going to be here for two years or are you going to be here for 30 years? And I said, Tom, we, we're not moving. This is our dream house. And so everything we did was the plan to be there for 30 years. So finally move in in early October. And now this is December and I'm hearing about the Devil Ray job. So like I said, I sat in it for a week, finally sent it in. And I, I probably late, turned out it was late. And I, I heard the story later on that they had just convened their group and had lowered the number from 300 tapes down to the final 10. When that group broke up and about five minutes later, the mail guy came walking by and said, Hey, uh, you know, I think this is for you. It might be another CD. And out of the kindness of this guy's heart, he popped it in the CD machine and listened for a couple minutes. And then he called the group back together real fast and said, I think you guys might want to listen to this because uh, I think he's as good as the final 10 that we have here. And sure enough, I became the, the 11th of the final 10 and then went in for the interview. And uh, it was a day where I had, left Chicago after doing a UIC game on a Thursday night where like two inches of snow was coming down on a Friday land in Tampa. It's 75 degrees and sunny. Uh, I'm thinking about mid, mid December or mid January it was, and I'm thinking to myself, wow, this is nice. And then come back to Chicago Friday night and I'm in a car driving up to green Bay in a whiteout the next morning uh, with my partner, Dick Nagy. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't think they have to worry about this in Florida. So it took about a week or 10 days to finally get the call back from the, uh, from the devil rays. But I remember getting the call on February 1st, it was uh, 10 o'clock in the morning. I was vacuuming my family room, answered the phone. They offered me the gig. I drove out to uh, grandstand, which is near now, uh, what's it called? Guaranteed rate. And uh, went to grandstand. They were always a big sponsor of mine. And I said, you got a devil rays jacket, a devil rays hat. And they did grabbed it, told them what happened. Drove to my wife's office and walked into her office with a double race hat and a double race jacket. And uh, she said, you're being a bit presumptuous, aren't you? I said, nope, I got the job. And uh, she started crying and cried, I think, for most of the most of the rest of the day because she wasn't ready to move. But uh, mm. after everything kind of worked out and after coming down here a couple of times in February to look for housing, 
I remember one time pulling into our garage in Orland Park and she looked at the snowblower and the shovels and she said, uh, I guess we're not going to need those again. And uh, that's when I knew she was, no pun intended, warming up to the idea. And now, honestly, um, if I were to ever, you know, like you mentioned about going back to the White Sox, not that that'll ever happen, but uh, she kind of jokingly once said, if that did ever happen, you'd have to go without me because I, I don't think I'd ever get her out of here. My thanks to Reds TV, NBC Sports, ABC Sports, and ABC News for those very memorable highlights. My thanks as always to TJ Reeves for being a guiding force behind this podcast, Will Hatzel for his expert editing and mixing, and Nick Tochi for our excellent graphics. And to our wonderful sponsors, Dynamic Manufacturing and Vienna B for their generous support. Tune in next week for another episode of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.